Micah chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 12. The ancient Greeks settled in an area in what's Italy today, about 800 years before Christ was born. And it's a region around a mountain called Vesuvius in the Bay of Naples. And even in that day, it attracted uh, wealthy vacationers who wanted to soak up uh, the sun and, and scenery. Uh, by the turn of the first century A.D., the town of Pompeii, uh, located about five miles from the mountain, was a, it was a, really a vacation resort. It was a flourishing resort for Rome's most distinguished citizens. Uh, it would have been like the Sandals resorts of their day. Elegant houses and elaborate villas uh, lined the paved streets. Tourists and townspeople and uh, slaves would bustle in and out of some small factories and artisan shops, taverns, cafes, and bathhouses and even brothels that would go along with that lifestyle. People gathered in the 20,000 seat arena or theater and lounged in open air squares and marketplaces in the warm Mediterranean sun. In AD 79, they estimated there were about 20,000 people living in Pompeii and the surrounding region. And that day in AD 79, witnesses reported that dust poured across the land, quote, like a flood. One witness wrote. Another witness wrote, it shrouded the city in a darkness, quote, like the black of closed and unlighted rooms, end of quote, as the volcano erupted. 2,000 of those 20,000 people died. city abandoned for many years. The site was abandoned until about 1748, pretty much, when a group of explorers rediscovered it. And surprised to find that underneath that thick layer of dust and ash and debris, Pompeii was mostly intact, as probably many of you know. Buildings, artifacts, skeletons were left behind in the buried city. They were able to teach us a great deal about everyday life in that time period. Some of them seemingly almost frozen at the very acts of different actions. In Micah chapter 3, Micah 3 helps us to reconstruct the setting of a disaster of God's people. God's people, Israel, destroyed by a greater force than a volcano, the force of the destructiveness of the sin of Israel. This morning I want to bring you a sermon entitled, Plowed Like a Field. Plowed Like a Field in Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. A little bit of background here is Micah chapter 3 is the second of three sermons that Micah gives to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah. You see, other prophets seem to be uh, um, poised to speak to specific sections of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, which is Isaiah, and uh, the kingdom, the northern kingdom, such as Amos, uh, 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 but Micah hits both of them here. And we saw last time that in verses 5 through 8 in the second portion of this second sermon, uh, Micah here uh, lays out the problem with the false teachers, the false prophets. In verses 1 through 4, he deliberately hits the government officials. In verses 5 through 8, he leans more on the false teachers, the false prophets of his day. Then in verses 9 through 12, he's going to kind of sum that up and bring them together here uh, as he hits both. 
And so in verses 9 through 12, he divide, I divided that, that, those verses into really three sections. Uh, verses 9 and 10, verse 11, and then verse 12 for the third section. Let's look at the text. Micah 3, verse 9. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob. So he's saying, listen. And now we know who his audience is. The heads of the house of Jacob. And princes of the house of Israel. So those are the folks he is addressing here. The leaders. Government leaders. And now he describes what they have done. That at poor judgment and pervert all equity... They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. First of all, this morning I want you to see that there is a perverted praying, and I mean praying as in a predator here in verses 9 and 10. There is a twisting. There is a twisting. Look what he says in verse 9. You heads of the house of Jacob, you princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. There is perverted Justice, perverted justice. That idea of judgment is that word that really ties together all three parts of this second message in Micah 3. It's the word justice, mispet, that we have looked at several times here in this book. It's a common theme, justice here. Uh, I shared to you what justice was understood to be by an Israelite. How God had laid out their ethics. How they they were to treat one another. uh, How were they to live in in community and harmony with one another. And they had abandoned that. There is a perverted praying, a twisting here. He says in verse 9 there, You abhor judgment or justice, and you pervert all equity. That word abhor is the Hebrew word te'ah, and it means to despise. It's a strong one. It means utter abhorrence of something. I had to clean the drain a couple weeks ago in my bathroom sink. And I was pulling up stuff out of that drain of black goo with hair. And I could say that I abhorred it. It was disgusting. I had an utter abhorrence to it. Um, It is is something that I despise. The reason it's it's built up, it's not something you want to do every day. So you build up until your sink doesn't drain anymore, and then you've got to take care of it, right? Because it's something you abhor. And that's the word here that's used in verse 9, that abhor justice or judgment. It's used for the disgust that Job saw in his detractors in Job 30 and verse 10. Uh, those who are accusing him of living unrighteously, that's why you're, you're facing this. And Job's abhorred that. That wasn't fair to him. It's also used in Psalm 119, 163, uh, the psalmist's disgust for lying. Amos uses it the same way Micah does in Amos 5.10. So they, 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 are, they are hating what when we looked when we studied uh, mistakes, something that God loved. Something that God's heart was in. For the broken people of his day. They hated that because they were interested in self-preservation. Interesting, again, that word justice there, translated judgment uh, in the King James, it's a key word that links uh, in, uh, all three of these sections here in chapter 3. You can see it in verse 1, you can see it in verses 8, and also verse 9. <clears throat> One of the great leaders of the modern era, 1871, 
Benjamin Disraeli. He was a Jewish man, but he was a very conservative uh, prime minister for England. He addressed the House of Commons in 1871 and addressed the government leaders. And he said this, We've legalized confiscation, consecrated sacrilege, and condoned high treason. As he reflected on the government of his day and the people in his nation. You know, these kinds of things that Mike is talking about were not peculiar to Mike's age because it proceeds out of selfishness. So there was a, a twisting there. Look in verse uh, 9 again. It says that abhor judgment or justice and pervert all equity. Pervert all equity. That word pervert means to twist. To twist. Um, if you if you take in a, a, a piece of metal and you, and, you, and you start to bend it or twist it, that's the idea. Equity has the idea of something that is straight. Something that is straight. And they have twisted something that is meant to be straight. So they have twisted uh, the word of God. They're perverted praying in verses 9 and 10. Twisted God's expectations for Israel. Notice there's also a terrorizing this perversion, a terrorizing. He says in verse 10, they build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. There's unethical corruption. He basically is saying, you're building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. Now, here's the thing. Jerusalem was doing very well economically. During Hezekiah's day, which that's according to chapter 1, verse 1, that was what a portion of this letter was about, uh, uh, Jerusalem was prospering. Their skyline was rising. Uh, Building projects were flourishing. Engineering and technology and architecture and a growing economy seemed to make it look like it was a shining city on a hill. One of the greatest accomplishments of all human history happened during Hezekiah's reign when he had that tunnel built out inside Jerusalem to the outside of Jerusalem to connect to the spring so they could have water in times of siege. They were only off by a couple of feet working from both ends without the modern technology that we enjoy. So it seemed as if things were going well. But beneath that prosperity was the sham of exploiting and taking from the weak. You can see this is already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2. And they covet fields and take them by violence, and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. Chapter 2, verse 9. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Jeremiah, a contemporary, of Micah, uh, lets us see uh, in Jeremiah chapter 22 a little bit more about what specifically Micah is talking about, what's going on in that day. Jeremiah 22, verses 13 through 17, Jeremiah says, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. That saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers, and cutteth them out windows, and it is sealed with cedar, the ceiling cedar ceilings, and painted with vermilion. 
Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him? He judges the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? Is not this my heart? Verse 16. But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. It gives you a little bit more of a picture of what he's talking about in chapter 3 here. The building of Zion with blood in Jerusalem with iniquity. It was urban renewal, certainly, but it was with a vengeance. Cost the lives of men. The idea is that they've squeezed the slender resources of their victims by nothing short of bloodshed to provide the brick and mortar for these works they're building. Habakkuk 2.12 has a similar idea here to pronounce his judgment on these people. Jerusalem's wealth and power came at a very heavy price. I don't have time to turn to it, but I've referred to this before. In 1 Kings chapter 21, the writer of Kings, who some think perhaps was Jeremiah, gives us a little window into understanding some of the unethical and corruption uh, uh, the unethical thinking corruption of those days with Ahab, King Ahab, northern kingdom. Who he's looking out his window and he sees his neighbor, Naboth. Naboth has had a, a portion of land in his family for years and years, generations. He has a beautiful vineyard. His family has kept up generation after generation. And Naboth says, I want that vineyard. Naboth, uh, he arranges a, a meeting with Naboth and he says, I'd like to purchase your land. And Naboth says, No, no, no. God gave us this land. And Ahab goes and he sulks and he pouts. And his Gentile wife, who is a Phoenician, a Philistine, Jezebel, comes and says, devises a plan. Let's have Naboth accused of something. And we'll bring him before him. We'll put him in a kangaroo court. We'll have him executed for the crime that we accuse him of doing. And so they do. Naboth is killed. And lo and behold, guess who takes his land? King Ahab, his neighbor. That's perhaps the kind of thing that was going on in Israel, and God condemns it. You know, there's a, <clears throat> there's a selfishness here that was arising out of their hearts in this perverted praying. Um, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, everybody's familiar, who's ever familiar with the Lord of the Rings, with the character Gollum. I mean, just from the sound of it, you can tell this isn't a guy who does very well. Um, he's the slimiest character in the trilogy. And uh, if you've done any reading in The Hobbit, uh, you might know that he was a character who was a hobbit named Schmeagel. But he has an obsession with, with this ring, and it deforms him into, into Gollum, um, which that's the name he got because of the horrible swallowing noise he makes in his throat. That's just how this buys him disgusting he is. Um, <clears throat> But he, he, once in a while, still remembers things of his former life, or he used to be before that ring uh, just captured his heart. And that's kind of what happens to, to people who get tangled in sin. Um, it, 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 it's a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a twisting and turning here of their hearts. Uh, their, their, their names, like Gollum, might as well be changed. Because they become what you live for. You become what you worship, you understand. What you worship is what you become. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul tells us to behold the glory of Christ. And that's how we're changed in His glory, degree by degree. 
When we set our hearts on other things, Romans 1 tells us, we exchange the glory of God for a corruptible thing. That's what was going on with these predators praying and profiteering off of others, twisting justice. But let's look at the second point here in verse 11. He said, The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Secondly, I'd like you to see that there's profiteering preaching. Profiteering preaching. Selfish greed. Your rulers are making decisions based on bribes. Your court system, your kings, your princes. Your priests are teaching God's laws only for a price. Your prophets aren't going to prophesy unless they're paid. And like Samuel's sons, remember in 1 Samuel 8, 3, they're called out for wanting to be bribed to do the work of the Lord. The opposite of Samuel. And that perversion of justice and bribery was prohibited in the law of God in Deuteronomy 16.19. Let me turn there and read to you what God had told the Israelite people in His covenant with them that they agreed to in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 19. He says, Thou shalt not rest or twist judgment, again justice, Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a wise doth blind the eyes of the wise. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. Again, the priests made their teaching ministry a focus of gain. It was their duty to teach the law, to decide controversies. Yes, they were to be taken care of and paid. That's what the tithes were for. Out of that would take care of the priests and prophets. False prophets were selling their visions and their oracles, saying it was from God. And showing here that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. They were deluding people. You know, they're saying, uh, I need this in order to do the spiritual work here. I need you to get me this. I need you to do this. And God denounces it. There's a, there's a dog named Wilson who's made, uh, made headlines <clears throat> a, little, a little bit ago. He's a, he's a, a, a chocolate lab. And uh, <clears throat> Wilson made headlines because... His owner uh, rushed Wilson to the vet because Wilson wasn't acting like his normal self. Uh, and he had noticed that Wilson had swallowed a golf ball uh, at, the, at the golf club. So they did an x-ray on Wilson. You know anything about chocolate labs and golden retrievers. They just eat and eat and eat and eat. Um, the x-ray revealed he hadn't swallowed a golf ball. He had swallowed seven golf balls. And... There, what had happened was the person who walked Wilson let him off the leash and they think he may have found a basket of, of practice golf balls somewhere near the golf club and thought they were dog biscuits and um, they thought he, they caught him just swallowing the last one and thought he'd eaten one but he'd eaten six, six before and he's incredibly greedy right um, he ate anything that he thought was food 
And um, he's only 18 months old, so they got a muzzle for him, uh, and he had to learn. But he went, uh, he went an operation and removed the golf balls. I don't know if you call that a golf ballectomy or what. But um, the, the, the issue was um, the golf balls weren't covered in something tasty, I don't think. He, but if he ate seven, he must have really liked them, you would think, right? Um, and, and they said if he could eat one more ball, he probably ruptured his stomach. So seven was his limit. But uh, uh, he wasn't satisfied with one, was he? Wasn't wasn't satisfied with that. And that's what's going on with these people here. They're not satisfied. Uh, and that's what greed does. This, the selfishness, it's never satisfied. It wants more. It wants to consume more and more. And what troubled Micah and God uh, was the sin in these courts and palaces and temples. All three branches were, were corrupt. And worse yet, they probably were working hand in hand. Politicians got their way in courts. The judges paid for the destruction of justice. The prophets benefiting from the arrangements, supporting the government. So there was a delusion among the people. But notice also that there is a deceiving. There is a deceiving. Look at their justification for the behavior in verse 11 at the end. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. You know why they could do that? They thought they were children of Abraham and they had a covenant relationship with God. And God was for them. But they had lost sight of their connection between what they believed and what they practiced. They, were, they just had a shell of true worship of Yahweh. They felt that their history was enough to keep them going. And there's a sense where, you're, where, where uh, uh, what God has done is certainly sufficient and enough. But God saves us for a purpose. They were, uh, they, their hearts were not right, were right with God. They had a, a, a false security, an unfounded trust in Yahweh. They described, oh yeah, we're leaning on the Lord. Everything's okay. God's going to bless us. But there was little, no fruit, no real fruit, no obedience to God. You know what they were really doing? When you think about it, this is what taking the name of the Lord in vain is many ways. All of them claim to depend on the Lord. Maybe you have had opportunity to talk to people who uh, were distant from the Lord and you confronted them and they said, you know, Pastor, I love the Lord. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. The Lord was not content with their words. They had a creed, they had a doctrinal statement, but... Their lives rejected it. I, I, I found this this week. It was very interesting. This is a Brazilian walnut tree. It's a beautiful tree. Um, it's usually a very large and strong tree, majestic in size and strength. But there's an enemy to this tree, and I don't know if you ever heard of it, because it's called a strangler fig. A strangler fig. And that little leaf coming out there is the start of a strangler fig. Um... When a strangler fig seed lands on this walnut tree, its roots start to 
descend to the ground. And you can see the roots are starting to go down to, down the trunk of this tree to the ground. And as it grows, the vines of the of this of the strangler fig uh, squeeze and they choke the walnut tree. That's the roots of this as it's grown, choking and strangling the tree. And the fig's grip on the tree comes so great that that tree becomes encased by these vines and eventually it dies. The tree dies. And over time, those vines still thrive and live. Um, but all that is left after the trunk rots out inside of that is like the shell of the vines. Twisted in the form and the shape of the tree. The tree disintegrates. And there's a tree structure that's still there, but it's just the vine structure in the shape of the tree. And the inside's hollow and lifeless. And this picture here is looking up from the bottom of the root system. You can see all the way through the top here, it's hollow. That used to be the tree trunk. But what's left is just the vines that went around it. Sin's like that, isn't it? Sin is like that. The twisting, the uh, justifying of of what we do uh, grows and grows and pretty soon there's nothing left. It's all rotted out. Look at the next verse. On their false presumptions. Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Here's the pronouncement of judgment. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. One commentator asked this question. If the most sacred institution of Israel, which was its temple, correct? was not serving its purpose, but in the hands was in religious perverts, uh, acting as a barrier to God, what further use could it be to him? They were corrupt, they are using their positions or power and influence for self-exaltation, and they will be judged severely. And so thirdly here, there is a prophetic promise, a prophetic promise. If you want to see how serious God is about this, read the book of Lamentations. It's not light reading. That's what happens here. That's, that's the promise fulfilled, the book of Lamentations. So there are two things in this passage here. Uh, there is a leveling and there is a leaving. A leveling, a leveling and a leaving. Look at verse 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps. Destroyed. Destroyed. Because of you, Micah says, Mount Zion is going to be ruined. Jerusalem is going to be ruined like an open field. That city that was on a hill is going to be plowed smooth. And the thought is this. The royal palace, the city, the temple is going to be so utterly destroyed and flattened that only the houses and palaces, uh, all the houses and palaces are, are going to be reduced to heaps of rubbish. The ground in which the city stood is going to be used as a plowed field and overgrown with bushes. Isaiah 32 says, On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in a joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs. Those are homes for animals forever. A joy of wild donkeys. A pasture of flocks. Therefore, Micah says, 
on account of the sins and disobedience of the leaders, Zion and Jerusalem and the temple are going to be devastated. That occurs in 586 B.C. 586 B.C. There's a leveling there. But there's also a leaving, an abandonment. Look what he says. And the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Jerusalem will become heaps. The mountain of the house, like the high places of the forest. It's going to be overgrown, is the idea. Overgrown. There's a lot of uh, uh, shows out there today that try to picture the world in an in a, in a, in a apocalyptic sense. You know, the end of the world and what life is going to be after that. So, um, and it is, you know, cities like New York City and other places that are just abandoned and overgrown by, uh, by trees and etc. here. That's kind of the picture here. There's going to be a thicket, a forest that is growing on the heights where the temple was now standing in Micah's day. And you might say, well, what's the significance of that promise? Let me, let me share with you. When you study the Old Testament, the forests in Israel were on the outskirts of their borders. And they were um, uh, in the deserts, the forests and deserts. They were kind of the most unholy place in, in Israel because there were unclean animals that would dwell within them, uh, as well as being very close to the heathen nations around them, being on the border. Farmland was a little bit more consecrated in their view, uh, as it was the source of life. And Jerusalem was more holy as the city where God lived. But even more than that, the summit of the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, closest to God symbolically, and on top of that, so the temple of Yahweh, God's presence, where even that was divided in the regions more and more holy. The crowning location being, of course, the most holy place, right? The Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter, enter one time a year, and only with atoning blood. And so for Yahweh to say that that place where he was supposed to dwell in Israel would be reduced to the place that was supposed to be at their borders for wild animals, uncleanness and death, the forest, was meaning business. Describing a huge reversal. You and I would say, wow, this this is harsh. This is hard. I want to tell you though, this warning is God's amazing grace. He is talking to sinners. He is warning sinners. He is telling them to listen. He's saying, you're going to be like that shell of a tree. That's what you're going to look like. And he's, and, he's, and he's telling them, your faith is empty, it's hollow. You say all the right things. You act a certain way. But you have no relationship with me. I wonder this morning if there are folks here who maybe you're claiming your religious heritage or you're claiming your wife's or husband's spirituality to to cover you or your good works or habits, but you have no faith grounded on the work of Christ. That God is calling you to, through Christ, uproot that, to cut away that strangler thing and live for God's glory. Through the work of Jesus. Or maybe you're a believer here. And there is just a sin and a habit that just keeps 
getting you, getting you. You have no victory over it. And John Newton kind of describes it like like this. Um, how many of you are left-handed in this room? All right, we got a few of you, and then those of you who are on the right side, uh, like me. No, uh, I have two left-handed children. Uh, my wife and I are not left-handed, and we really don't have very many people in our families that are left-handed. We have two of our four kids are left-handed. And John, uh, well, I'll jump ahead of myself here. You know that left-handed people, I have sympathy for you because people don't know how to sit at a table with you. They, they, they bump you. And they say you're bumping them, but they bump you. Um, and, and there are some things that happen now. That, and whoever came up with writing uh, left to right, that works great for right-handed people. But I had left-handed kids that I would teach in school, and their whole arm would be gray with pencil lead dots as they would write like this. It just, it's, it's just not practical for you. Um, but John Newton describes the effects of indwelling sin as, as, imagine a Christian sitting down with a blank page and pen. And he begins to write out his perfectly scripted life, explaining how he would love others, how he would structure his prayer life, or how he would build a beautiful Christian family, etc. But there's indwelling sin and Satan, and it's crouching at your elbow there. And it disrupts every pen stroke. And it messes up every word and sentence as that Christian friend tries to write its script. And at every point of the Christian life, Satan likes to jab our elbow and make our pen skid across. And our perfect plan just now looks like scribbles. And that's the metaphor of the Christian life with indwelling sin. The problem is not the sin that's at our elbow. Our sin, uh, the problem though is that our, here's where the analogy breaks down, our sin's in us. Sin's in us. And you might look at this passage and say, the selfishness, the greed, um, uh, the, the, the wrong motives here. Uh, uh, there's, there's little seeds, there's little things that I can see that this, 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 is, this is matching up with my life. I'm not in line with God and His Word. I want to tell you the hope here. There's hope. Because while God would carry this out, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. What is quoted here in Micah 3:12? What is written in Jeremiah it quoted or written in Micah 3:12 is quoted in Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 18 during the reign of Hezekiah, one of the last kings who was uh, before Micah died. In Jeremiah 26:18, God confronts. God confronts the government. Verse 17 says, Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountains of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? The answer is no. So Micah confronted King Hezekiah, and look what happened. What did Hezekiah do? 
Did ye not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against him? Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. They wanted to put Jeremiah to death. Elders brought this up. But what does that tell us? It tells us that God used the message of Micah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah repented. God gave another hundred years to Hezekiah in his reign. The people turned again, and that destruction does occur in 586 B.C. when Babylon invades. They fit something well documented in history. But there's hope in repentance. Because there's hope in a God who loves people who repent. Here's the issue. Here were people building a city from all kinds of corrupt ways. Man's blood, taking advantage of people. But God builds an eternal city, and He does that from one man's blood. He takes the blood of Jesus, and He builds an eternal city from it. These people were slaughtering the poor, the innocents, working them to death, and slavery, having them over a barrel, so to speak. God takes the sin of the people, and He puts it on His Son, Jesus. And he builds an eternal city through one man's blood. You say, well, what's the significance of that? I want to tell you that on the cross, Jesus was plowed like a field. He was laid bare. He received the sin of the world upon him. He became the sin bearer. He was abandoned by his father because your and my sin was laid upon him at the cross. And sinner, if you look to Jesus alone in your place, you will live. Believer, disciple of Jesus, who is fighting indwelling sin, if you gaze into His glory, you will become like Him. How do you gaze into His glory? You see Him upon the cross as your sin bearer and and, and are reminded of that. You see Him from the tomb, the unstoppable Christ, who transfers His full righteousness to your record. You see Him ascended to His Father, the victorious One, above all powers and enemies. You see Him interceding for you to the Father on your behalf for power and grace to find help in time of need. You see Him sending His Spirit to dwell in you and operate the new heart that He's put within you. I don't know where you are at your point of life. Perhaps you haven't come to Jesus. You need to come and look and live and see Jesus as the one whose blood was poured out for you on the foundations of the city that Jesus is building. Or maybe, disciple, your heart is hard. There are things in your life that are like that strangler fig. There's selfishness that is obviously very present. There's greed that manifests itself in many different ways. I want to tell you, for both people, Jesus is still the answer. And He's calling, come home, come home, come home to Jesus. And His arms are wide. And He does not delight in the punishments that He will require 
or a hardened heart. But he does delight in a broken and a transparent heart. He will not despise. He was the Lord Jesus who suffered at the hands of many of the descendants of these people in this text. Hearts that were hardened still. Hearts that had the very person of Jesus in their own presence. And he tells them, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And that's his invitation today. And he promises, whosoever will, may come. I don't know where the Spirit's working in your heart this morning, and it's not my words that would be doing anything to you. It's the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God. But if He's pointed out to you where you are between your relationship with God and yourself, if He is pointing you to Jesus, you need to listen. You need to turn to the Lord Jesus. And He's calling you to repent and come to Him today. Believer, if He has put His finger on a very dark corner of your heart, that sin needs to be taken care of today, and it can be. There is hope for any sin. The power of Jesus Christ, there's hope in the cross. If after this message you need to speak or have counsel, certainly will be available. If there's somebody here who knows that the Lord Jesus is calling them today, come to the Lord, be His disciple. Today is the day of salvation. If there's a believer struggling, you need help, you need prayer, don't hesitate. That's why we're here. He's calling, come home. Come home to Jesus. We're going to sing, and then I will uh, be here at the front after we sing. If anyone needs prayer or needs to talk, certainly we'll be available. Let's turn it on the books here to Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. Number 325. Let's stand and sing. 325. kids a story about Adoniram Judson. Adoniram was raised in a Christian home and he turned from the Lord Jesus and he went to what's called Brown University today. And it was there that he became tangled in agnostic and, and deistic ideas and turned his back on the gospel in Christ. He never was saved up to that time, but he turned from the teaching of his father. His father was a pastor. 
There, he uh, associated with a group of people who really called him, thought they were very progressive for their society and age. And he had a very close friend named Jacob Eames. And he and Jacob Eames had a plan to basically change the whole country. They had big visions and dreams. And what it was, was really playing out humanism. Well, they graduated from college and they kind of split, separated their ways and... Um, and though they were still friends, and and um, and uh, Adoniram Judson went to find his. Uh, he taught in school for a while, but that wasn't fulfilling to him. And so he went to New York City and tried to get involved in in, in the Broadway and plays. Even back in that day, in the um, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, failed miserably. Failed miserably. He had a tremendous mind to think and solve problems, but he, he he failed miserably. He ended up eating out of garbage cans in New York City. Finally, he got enough. He said, I'm going to go home. On his way home, uh, he didn't have any money. He stopped at an inn. And uh, he asked the innkeeper, do you have any really cheap rooms? The innkeeper said, you know, I'm, the inn's full. I do have this one room. It's already, uh, uh, um, someone's already using it. But that person is on their deathbed. And they're basically using this as a hospice. Uh, but you can, it's divided by a curtain, you can share um, you can share that room. And so he did. He went into that room and slept that night, not, not very well at all. All during that night he could hear the person next to him wheezing and coughing and groaning. And people coming in and, and uh, dabbing the man's forehead, etc. as that man was, was, was slowly dying. Finally the noise stopped and the next morning Adoniram went out and he paid what little money he could to the innkeeper and said, by the way, uh, whatever happened to the guy I was sharing the room with, the curtain was across. He said, oh, he died during the night. And Adoniram said, well, what was his name? And the innkeeper said, his name was uh, uh, Jacob Eames. And there across the curtain was somebody who they had planned to take over the world, basically. All kinds of dreams, living out their humanism. And he had died next door at a horrible death. In the early age of his late 20s and 30s. And Adoniram knew that was God speaking to him. That was a turning point. Adoniram went home to his parents who repented. And God called him to be the very first missionary sent from the United States of America. That's a whole other story in and of itself, how he got to Burma. Captured by pirates, you name it. But I want to tell you that God uses his word and God uses circumstances to call people to himself. And Adoniram, as a prodigal running away from God, had displayed next to him the fruit of that. And the room next door, he didn't even know. Didn't even know the man next to him was a was a guy he had built dreams with, his best friend. And God showed him that's empty. And if you have a gnawing hunger in your heart and emptiness that nothing can fulfill, it's probably a good sense that God was meant to fill that. I just want to tell you on the basis of God's word, come to Jesus. Let's